This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 21st of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. And this is Michael Reid on LMFM. Sinn Féin is bringing a focus today on hospital services in County Louth. The party's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan, is to hold a number of meetings with staff, management and HSE officials in both the Louth County Hospital in Dundalk and our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda across this morning and going into this afternoon. The first of the meetings will be with management in the Lourdes. Uh, that's uh, to get underway in less than an hour's time. Uh, and anyone listening to this programme last week will be aware of one patient in that hospital, a 14-year-old girl who, by all accounts, has serious psychiatric problems. The hospital wanted to discharge her and asked her mother to take her home on a number of occasions last week because there's nothing physically wrong with her. Her mother refused saying if she did, she would have to bury her daughter because she's certain the little girl will end her life. Uh, this morning, that little girl is still a patient in the Lourdes Hospital. Uh, her mother tells us uh, that she tried to escape again over the weekend. Uh, she wasn't successful, thankfully, and the hospital had placed a security guard on the ward to stop that from happening. Uh, and there has been some progress, uh, and maybe we can get to that progress in the story in a few minutes time uh, but let's uh, say good morning to David Cullinan who's on the phone with us now and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning this uh, has been a, a remarkable story uh, and it seems as though there may be some attention given to this girl now following a public outcry it doesn't seem the right way to go about doing things Well good morning Michael first and can I thank you and your programme for highlighting the story and I listened to the lady uh, that you refer to as Mary, I know that it's anonymized uh, and obviously it's a a harrowing situation when you hear of any child that is going through the situation that this poor girl is going through and it's very obviously harrowing for the parents as well as they battle for services. My understanding is that this family have been trying for the best part of two years to get a diagnosis for their child. She has been in and out of the CAM services and she simply has not got the services that her parents and her family and I think the people listening to your programme would agree that she needs and she hasn't hasn't received those services up to now. Um, obviously, I will raise this issue directly with hospital management today when I visit the hospital 
but I think the resolution of this is to get a psychiatric bed and an admission uh, for the girl and to make sure that she gets all of the wraparound supports which are needed as well. And we know from what we saw in Kerry over the last number of months and also stories coming from Cork as well, that the CAM service right across the state is under-resourced. We don't have enough psychologists, we don't have enough psychiatrists, and we don't have enough inpatient beds, mental health care beds. And that's leading in some situations as well, Michael, to children um, who are admitted to adult psychiatric wards because we don't have the inpatient beds for children that we need across the state. So again, it's back to capacity issues, resourcing, the hiring of staff, and we simply don't have the investment in mental health, but especially in CAMS that we need to make sure that children like that child that you highlighted last week gets the services and gets the support that she needs. And when you meet with management today, uh, you'll be accompanied by local TD, Imelda Munster, who heard from management on Friday evening. And they've said in a letter to Imelda Munster that uh, the child has been clinically assessed. A decision now has to be made on whether uh, that assessment indicates uh, that she requires uh, to be admitted for inpatient treatment. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, the expectation would be that that decision would be made and no made known to uh, the little girl herself and indeed her, her mother today? I hope so, Michael, is the short answer. Obviously, I'm not a medic and the job uh, of politicians is to make sure that the capacity is in the system in loud so that if a patient needs to be admitted that there is sufficient beds in place and obviously the clinical judgment has to be made by the psychiatrists and the clinicians. But obviously, if you listen to the harrowing story uh, that we've heard last week from her mother, the fact that she has tried to escape from the hospital. She is in a hospital at the moment in, 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 in Our Ladies uh, of Lourdes Hospital. That's not where she needs to be. She needs to be in the psychiatric uh, unit in CAMS in, and, and getting the full wraparound supports that the child needs. And let's hope that following all of the highlighting of, of this issue that was done by yourself and others, that we will get a resolution to this issue sometime today. Let's hope so. Uh, it's uh, undoubtedly part of the pressure on the health service and uh, that health service pressure has been compounded, no doubt, uh, by COVID-19. And uh, it appears that last year the health service ran over budget by €640 million. Euro. Is that any surprise? No, and I think the main problem that we have in, in our health services is the waiting list. So while the Minister and the Government are pointing to some additional funding that was made available last year, and it was, and I acknowledge and I celebrate every single additional cent, every single additional healthcare worker, be it a nurse or consultant, that's hired in the system. Obviously, all of that is welcome. You have to look at the evidence of what's happening on the ground, and if you look at the waiting list, Almost 900,000 people across the state are on some form of acute hospital waiting list. We have 10,555 people in Loud who are on an outpatient waiting list for Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. And about 1,500 of those are waiting over 12 months. That's a huge amount of patients who are waiting for access simply to see a consultant. And then there's thousands more on an inpatient waiting list waiting for surgeries. We've seen again over the last number of weeks what's happening in emergency departments right across the state where presentations are up, where we have record numbers of people again on hospital trolleys. 
And this was a feature of the Irish healthcare system long before we ever heard of the word COVID. We also have a real crisis in GP capacity. And for the first time now, Michael, we're seeing people wait days, sometimes weeks for a GP appointment. Out of our services isn't what it should be. And all of these are what's leading to what's happening in terms of waiting lists and the hospital trolley count. Because if hospitals don't have the bed capacity to admit patients, then that creates a block in your emergency department. If you don't have the facilities in community hospitals, the uh, rehab beds, the recovery beds, uh, then people can't be transferred uh, and can't be discharged Mm. from acute hospitals into community settings. And if people don't have access to GP capacity, and many people simply can't get a GP now quick enough, some people can't register with a GP, uh, certainly in rural areas in some parts of the state, and it's now happening in some urban areas as well. All of that means people have no choice but to go to the emergency department, and that's creating real pressures. So when you see the type of situations we saw, particularly in, in Kerry, in Cork, in Limerick, uh, in Waterford and many uh, yeah. acute hospitals where it's been uh, really, really difficult over the last number of weeks. It's all a symptom of almost everything in the healthcare system going wrong at the same time and it all blocks up in our emergency department. Uh, and the waiting lists will only get longer if you don't have uh, the staff to see people and there is a, an ironic part of that uh, overspend because uh, it's between 600 and 640 million euro more than should have been spent uh, but I, I think a lot of people would say it was money well spent if it was, if it was spelt on, on vaccinating the population the testing uh, and tracing the hotel quarantine uh, and PPE all ran over budget uh, bring that figure of between 600 and 640 million euro Euro. Uh, but the ironic part of it is, is that has been offset by some 500 million euro that the HSE wasn't able to spend uh, because it, it wasn't able to recruit people that that money had been allocated to recruit. Well, I think that's part of a, a wider problem in the healthcare system that it's very fragmented, it's disjointed. We were promised reform over the last number of years. And if you go back to the Shalanta care reforms, what was committed to is that we would align Uh, community care, primary care and acute care under what's called regional health areas. And what I wanted to see is a real devolving of power uh, into local areas, into local hospitals and into what would replace hospital groups and CHO areas into a single tier management structure uh, that they could make quick decisions in relation to capital funding, quick decisions in relation to recruitment, but also that they would have workforce plans for each of those uh, new regional health areas that looks at how many staff do we need and join that up with the higher education institutes because we're simply not training enough staff. We have a chronic shortage of nurses worldwide. And like any country, Ireland is very dependent on uh, recruiting nurses from abroad. We also have 700 vacant consultant posts which have still not been filled. And now we have a crisis in GP capacity. And if you take that as a very good example, the HSE has said that we need to recruit an additional 1,600 Uh, GPs or bring 1,600 GPs into the GMS contract over the next five years. They also say that 500 GPs will retire. That means that 2,100 additional GPs will have to come on stream over the next five years. We're only training 230 a year, so it will take at least 10 years to reach that target. And we know all of those won't come into the system. It's the same with nursing. It's the same with consultants. So we need a much more joined up mm. approach, Michael, where the uh, Department of Health, when it sets targets, they have to be real, realistic, deliverable, uh, and it also has to be joined up with a workforce plan that ensures that we're training uh, the sufficient staff numbers in relation to nursing consultants 
uh, and uh, GPs and others. But there are other issues as well in relation to retention and issues that all of those staff have raised for a long time in relation to terms and conditions of employment, the difficulties it has for many nurses, for example, working in wards where we don't have safe staffing levels. Mm. So unless all of these issues are dealt with, I think we're going to continue to have real problems recruiting staff. And, you know, I'm very conscious as the main opposition health spokesperson and somebody who wants to be a future Minister for Health that there are big challenges in healthcare. But mm. we can't say Those challenges are going to get bigger, though, aren't they? And because of COVID, uh, and uh, if COVID is over, what comes uh, uh, in its footsteps? Uh, because uh, there's a, a lot of underlying illnesses that have been building up uh, and people haven't been seen or diagnosed. And if you look at uh, cancer uh, alone, there's been a 20% drop in surgery. Uh, and that's not because people didn't have cancer, it's because they haven't been diagnosed. Or, or got to that stage uh, in uh, their care treatment because of delayed diagnosis where they would be operated on. Uh, you'll be in the Lourdes today, which has been one of the worst hospitals in the country for people waiting on trolleys. It then became one of the best hospitals in the country. Uh, and then last week we had a, a situation uh, where the Lourdes was uh, saying it was exceptionally busy and asking people not to come to the emergency department. And you'd wonder if uh, that's a, a, as a result of uh, what I was just mentioning there about sickness building up in the community. Well, I've been in 15 hospitals over the last number of months, uh, Michael, as part of what I call a health tour. And the reason for it is every time you go into a hospital and every time I have a meeting with hospital management, but also nurses and consultants, and I'll meet members of the INMO today as well, you learn something new and you learn about what's happening in hospitals. Some hospitals are managed better than others. Uh, There's good practices in some hospitals and bad practices. And it gives me a real snapshot of what's happening right across the health service. But also, I get to learn about the real needs of, of the hospitals in, in Loud, uh, both in Dundalk and Fahada. And obviously, that's very important. But I just want to make one broad point, if I can. I believe that there has been a narrative for far too long that the problems in healthcare can't be fixed. That the health service or the Department of Health was described before as Angola. It's described as many people who want to go into government as a poison chalice. And I see it quite differently. We want healthcare. We will seek out healthcare if we are in government because if you can transform health services to deliver better healthcare, you can make a real difference to people's lives, like the child that we mentioned earlier and so many others who need better healthcare treatment. And when in budget time, I have discussions with you and others in relation to bed capacity. So take last year's budget, and I was on your programme, I was talking about the fact that the government hadn't one additional inpatient bed into its budget beyond what was already agreed. Uh, We had proposed additional inpatient capacity, not just in acute hospitals, but also for mental health, for CAMS, for recovery beds, for addiction beds. uh, And those beds are badly needed if patients are to get the treatment that they need. So I have a plan in relation to how we can transform our health services. I want an Irish National Health Service. Uh, We need to have a plan to tackle the high waiting lists, which is a bit more capacity that I spoke about earlier. But we also have to have a plan joined up with the higher education institutes to train the staff. I don't want to put anything forward, Michael, in any election campaign or in any election manifesto that isn't realistic or deliverable. People have had far too many false promises in relation to healthcare. But what I can say 
is that if you have a government and the Minister for Health who is truly committed to equality in healthcare and who is truly committed to transforming the system away from a two-tier system to a single-tier system where people can get the treatment as quick as they can, I think we can start to make real significant progress. And when you're on the ground meeting patients, meeting staff, meeting hospital management, hearing stories from local radio stations, as I have done, you get a sense of what the real issues are and I have a real feel of what's needed. And I hope that if Sinn Féin is in government, we do get the Ministry for Health because I think we can make some big changes that will make people's lives better. All right, well, you'll be meeting uh, with management and staff and certainly getting a, a feel for how local hospitals are operating in Our Lady of Lourdes and uh, the Louth County in Dundalk uh, later this morning. Uh, pretty soon, actually, you'll be meeting with uh, management in uh, the Lourdes. Uh, so we'll let you off the line to uh, go ahead with that meeting. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, on Friday, Green Party TD Nasser Hurrigan published a bill with uh, the group Not Here, Not Anywhere that would deny planning permission for liquefied natural gas in this country. It could have serious consequences for Shannon LNG and it could also have serious consequences for governmental relations. We have a serious difference emerging between the Green Party and at least Fianna Gael. We're not sure of your position. On the question of LNGs, Eamon Ryan had intervened with Onboard Planola and told them that under no circumstances should the Shannon LNG project be given planning permission because it would be in opposition to the programme for government and the commitment not to uh, import LNG into the country. Now, he believes it wouldn't make sense because it would conflict with the programme for government. Uh, the Tarnish the Leo Varadkar said last week, and it was quoted in the papers at the weekend, that the government would not prevent Shannon from going ahead if it received planning permission. I need to know what is the position of Antishak. And we also need to know what conflict emerges over these issues, which are defining issues of our period, the time we're living in, and if the government are going to lock us in to a fossil fuel future by allowing Shannon LNG to go ahead. That's people before profits, uh, Breed Smith. The Taoiseach, to answer her question, uh, appears uh, to be on the same side of uh, this debate as the Taoiseach is. I rarely uh, would intervene as Taoiseach. Uh, in decisions that on board plan all has to be. I never do as, in any event as a public rep. But. Let's uh, talk uh, to uh, the Green Party's Nasser Hurricane now and uh, a very good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, it looks uh, from what the Taoiseach and the Taunisha have said about this subject uh, that your bill is dead in the water before it gets off the ground. No, I would agree. I think this bill, unlike previous bills that have dealt with LNG that looked to um, make the actual resource itself um, illegal, this is looks at just the infrastructure. And it is completely in line with the programme for government, which says that we don't believe that large scale fossil fuel infrastructure like liquid natural gas import terminals are a good idea. So everybody signed up to that programme for government. And I think what you're referring to there in those quotes not, not that I'm under any illusions, by the way, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil feel the way about LNG as the Greens do. I, I do think that they're more open to the discussion. But really what they're saying when they're saying that they're not going to intervene is, for the most part, the body politic doesn't directly interfere in planning decisions once those decisions have been made. That's for the, the courts to do. It's meant to be an independent process, and I believe that that's what they were referring to. Mm, yeah, but uh, as you know, the Thomas just said, if uh, the planning sought for is successful, uh, they'll be given permission and they'll go ahead ahead with their investment. 
Well, the government has taken a position that adopting a policy that is basically anti-LNG is, you know, a, a, a move that the planning authority has to refer to when they're making the decisions. And all the law around planning would support that position, that you have to refer to government policy of the day when you're making planning decisions. So they believe what they've done already will not require them to step in any further. Now, look, I suppose I wouldn't be tabling this bill if I wasn't concerned about the issue. I I, I am, and I'm hoping that Board Panala will do the right thing and recognise that this is national policy and it cannot be set aside. And we've seen Board Planola spend nearly 10 million in in legal fees, uh, often because they have set aside statutory documents and national policy in the last couple of years. So I'm hoping that the decision will be the right one. However, I am concerned that, you know, it's not so much the government's position. We're dealing with incredibly aggressive oil and gas companies companies who are constantly trying to sidestep that national policy and becoming more aggressive in their uh, uh, attempts to do so. Mm. So, for, for example, one of the companies has recently said to the Irish government, well, if you, if you allow us to move forward with these terminals, we'll give you an undertaking that there will be no fracked shale gas, so unconventional gas in these terminals. Now, that's a total nonsense. They can't guarantee that and we can't substantiate that claim. Mm, well, that's what Shannon LG has said, has it not? Yeah, well, that's New Fortress Energy and uh, Predator, which I always think is, is uh, a very apt name for the companies. So I think this is more, uh, my bill is, I suppose, more looking to that incredibly aggressive um, stance of the oil and gas companies. And of course, as we're seeing the EU taxonomy accepts, possibly accepts gas and nuclear as a green resource, as a green fuel, which of course neither of them are, um, then we're going to see finance and investment move into those areas. So um, guarding against um, gas and LNGs particularly, which is, is not the same as natural gas that's coming into everybody's homes mm. in Ireland today. It's a completely different thing. It's ve- very much more polluting. Um, you know, we do need to be mindful of, of that new landscape of investment in, into LNG. Okay, but you're bringing forward a, a bill which you believe is necessary. Uh, would you agree that it's not going to get uh, the support of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael? Well, it is in line with the programme for government, so I don't agree that it's not going to get but the support of Fianna Fáil. You've, Fianna you've Fianna heard the comments from is, party leaders, from the Taoiseach and the Tánaiste. This is about opening a debate about implementation. It's not so much the thrust of the bill itself. And obviously, the reason that previous bills in this area didn't um, succeed is not necessarily because they didn't have merit, but because the Attorney General found them to be um, not legal and not in line with EU law, mm. because they did seek to... Um, uh, f- forbid a particular resource rather than what this bill is doing, which is um, to forbid the infrastructure. So I think legally it's, it's a different animal and we could look at it. And considering that it is completely in line with national policy and um, with the government, and I, I did actually you, you know, go, go to Minister Ryan and, and explain the bill um, quite a bit in advance. And I, I think there's a debate to be had there and, and the bill does have merit. Mm. And Eamon Ryan will support the bill as all of the Green Party members will, will they? Well, look, I think the Green Party is very um, articulate and robust in our um, resistance right. to okay. LNG. I think, you know, the coalition does make things more complex, but certainly, you know, he was very open to the, okay. to the debate and has the best way to implement so it. So your, your, your leader is not going to support the bill then, is that what you're saying? It's not clear to me whether they will or they won't. Um, what, what he did say is that, you know, the bill has merit and he welcomes the debate about how best to implement what is already government policy. Mm. That must be uh, terribly disappointing for you. Uh, well, look, private members' bills, don't you, you don't table them with the kind of express 
belief that they, they will be adopted by government. You constantly well, have to negotiate and every okay. single other backbencher has to do the same okay. thing. That, 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 that's nice and pragmatic, uh, but uh, you're obviously... I'm learning I'll, I'll, to be pragmatic I'll, the longer I'm in this government. I'll, ta- I'll take it to me that you're not going to answer the question directly. Anyway, is there merit to the bill or can there be a question uh, about the merits of the bill? Because uh, without Shannon LNG, what is this country going to do for natural gas? Well, currently, the way that we receive natural gas is um, from the North Sea via the UK. Now, um, that is conventional gas extraction. And into the future, in the next few years, gas will be part of the energy sector as we transition over to renewables. Ultimately, the only energy sustainability that we have is indigenous renewables and a fully integrated EU grid that allows us to calibrate with the renewables from other countries. LNG is a different animal. It would actually tie us to a global energy market where most of it is sourced from the US and Qatar. It is far more insecure in terms of price and um, supply Mm. than what we're dealing with at the moment. So, in fact, it would actually add to our insecurity because we would be relying on private companies that are purely profit-based. But without it, we'd be relying on the Scottish, wouldn't we? And the use of a pipeline from here to Scotland. Without without it, we're using our limited resources to invest in renewables and a fully integrated EU grid. But the plan isn't to to have 100% renewables, it's to have 70%. So the other 30% will have to come from elsewhere. And if we need natural gas, that's going to have to come across uh, the sea through a pipeline from Scotland, isn't it? But ultimately, not for anything better than that anyway. Like, there are many LNG terminals around the EU there's ones in France, in Germany, all across the EU. In the last 12 months, we've seen incredible levels of um, price insecurity and also, honestly, just the storage facilities being empty. And LNG in those countries didn't guard them against any of those issues, didn't provide the kind of security that gas and oil companies suggest that LNG will provide. It's not better or worse in terms of the energy supply than natural gas, other than it places us into that global market. But it is far worse for the environment. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's uh, Green Party TD, NASA Hurrigan. Michael Reed on LMFM. of us uh, believe uh, that children should have a right to free, high-quality and accessible early years education. This is according to the latest Early Childhood Ireland uh, National Barometer. Uh, Let's speak uh, to Director of Early Childhood Ireland, Francis Byrne. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I suppose it's a no-brainer in many respects because uh, it can be very expensive. Well, yes, indeed. Um, um, Michael, thanks for having us on. Yes, I mean, this is our fifth um, national barometer based on polling that Red Sea um, has been doing on an annual basis for us since 2018. But it's our first time to ask this specific question, which is really focusing on the rights and needs of children. Um, And it's very good to see that um, 80% of Irish people and it's all demographics, obviously it's much higher among parents. Um, It rises up to 93 and 95% for um, parents with very young children and slightly older children. I think the only surprise there is that it's not 100%. I take it (laughs) the 20% uh, of people uh, who didn't uh, agree with uh, the question don't have children under five. Yeah, and I think part I think part of that is you see, and and and, and you know we hear this all the time um, on the airwaves. Uh, you know, parents in Loud, Meath, and beyond 
are absolutely strapped to the pin of their collar, uh, describing um, paying for childcare as a second mortgage or second month's rent. So I think for many parents, it's kind of baked in. <laughs> so mm. there is this sort of, well, we have to do this or, or, or not avail of it. Um, which is really regrettable and in other countries they, they manage this much better but in other countries where they do this well this is where they started from they started from the premise of uh, wanting to do best by children and recognising how important quality early years care and education is for young children Right. Um, what would the cost so of the exchequer be? Well that's an excellent question at the moment in Ireland we know that the government is at the moment spending roughly half a billion and has made a promise to spend um, almost a billion uh, by 2028. At the the moment, that equates to about 0.2%. So if we double that, that will bring us to 0.4% of gross domestic product. And the, the, the bad news is that UNICEF says we should be spending 1% and Sweden, which are the world leaders in early years care and education investment, are spending 1.9%. So we're probably looking at something in the order of between 1.5 and $2 billion to actually achieve this, um, which, is no, which is no small amount of, of money. Not, now, no, we're spending no, about no. 3.5 on the rest of the education system. So that could give you an idea. Um, of the maths that we're talking about. Right, uh, it is a, a, an awful lot of, of uh, money. Uh, would there be a return on the investments? You see, this is it. An, an investment is exactly the way we should be looking at it. So again, if we look at Sweden or other countries, um, as well as providing um, this uh, care and education, which parents do make a contribution towards um, in cash terms, as well as obviously through their taxes, the other thing that Sweden gets right is very low levels of child poverty. And those two things are linked. So we know, for example, that if um, early years care and education is increased um, and, uh, and child poverty goes down in tandem with that, and the two things are linked, as I said, we know that later on in children's lives, other interventions that um, the state may need to make also reduce. So it's very important. It's also very important from the point of view of children. Mm. This is when children's brains develop most. um, And so it's a critical time in children's lives that isn't replicated. There's one chance for our country to get this right for children. And what we're saying is that once children turn turn one one year of age, the state should start looking at what is good for children. Is it two hours a day? Uh, three hours a day, four hours a day, make that decision. And if parents need more because of labour market participation, then just like in other countries, parents would contribute to that, but it would be at at a particular level. So everybody um, would be contributing, wealthier people contributing more, but that nobody is getting, for want of a better word, gouged, you know, nobody mm. is, char- is is paying exorbitant. Which is obviously what you think is the case at the moment, uh, because, it, yeah. I mean, you need a, the, the, the cost of a second mortgage to afford childcare, and uh, having a family is a very difficult decision that people have to make, and it can affect that decision, for that matter. And there are places, you said from one, there are countries, uh, some of uh, the Scandinavian countries uh, that provide free childcare from birth, that they'd have nursery care up to three years of age and that sort of thing. Uh, but you're not saying that it, it, it should be universally free, are you? What we're, what, what we're saying is, and, and what we're asking the Irish public is whether they agree that um, parents should be financially supported to stay at home with their child for the, for the first 12 months and 63% are agreeing with us. Um, and that has certainly held steady. 
Um, and we are seeing that more and more. But after that, um, the, we need to be making a decision collectively as a society what's in the best interest of children in terms of numbers of hours in centre-based care or with a childminder. Mm. And in some cases, children would still need to be with a parent, whatever the circumstances were. Yeah. And that if, if, if the family needs more than that, that there would be a contribution made, but it would be on a targeted basis. And there would be, if you like, a floor and a ceiling. So nobody would be paying 100%, 100% yeah. of mm-hmm. that. Okay, and um, when, when you really sp- what we're saying. But when you say uh, if a parent should be supported to stay at home, uh, what you really mean, uh, or at least 90%, if not 99% of cases, if uh, the mother should be supported to stay at home, uh, and that's possibly why uh, people uh, answer differently depending on whether they were men or women when they were asked. Yes, uh, and certainly the gender divide, the gender divide is, is, is strong um, in this year's poll. I mean, one of the things that... Um, absolutely uh, is important and Early Childhood Ireland has really welcomed this. The current government, the former government and we hope any future government is moving us towards that first year. So already um, you have the, the traditional, you know, the, the 26 weeks as you said that is um, usually taken up by maternity leave and then we're building towards a situation where the rest of the year can be shared between either parent in a two-parent situation. However, we also know that fathers are not taking that up as, as much as mothers are. Now, that's partly to do with absolute choice uh, in that family, but it also can be an economic decision because, generally speaking, in the round, and not to get listeners ringing in um, angrily, but generally speaking, as, as you have said, mm. um, it, it is generally the mothers, and, and that can often be an economic decision. So one of the things that needs to happen is we need to move towards that benefit covering more and more wages. A lot of employers will give a top-up, but many employers can't afford to give a top-up. So again, people are left with an economic decision, whereas really what they should be doing is making the best decision, the best decision for mm. their family and not have to worry about you know, um, ending up in poverty as a result of decisions they've made during the first year. Yeah, and it's not just um, the first year, though, is it? I mean, there's a lot of no. women. a lot of women will tell you they can't afford to work. Absolutely. And, and, and we have seen that statistically, even when Ireland was booming um, and there were lots of jobs, we did see um, borne out by the Central Statistics Office that when um, parents had a second child, a dramatic decrease in participation in work by women, by mothers. So absolutely. Um, but in countries where we see high quality uh, transparently costed um, early years care and education and after school care and that includes childminders in both of those uh, fields. When we see that in other countries, uh, parents do decide to go back to work it may well be part time at first and of course employers realising um, how important it is to get highly qualified staff back, back into the workplace, you, you will see flexibility uh, in the workplaces and we and we have seen that through COVID, you know, for, for, for a an awful reason, but we can also see in those countries for very positive for very positive reasons. So it's it's important that it's a whole of society approach. We've a bit of a way to go in Ireland. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I was just thinking yeah. if uh, people think that this <laughs> there's any prospect of this happening, uh, they may be disappointed and they may have some time to wait. Uh, but uh, they've uh, made their views known. Uh, and thanks uh, for telling us what they are, for that matter. Uh, we have to leave it there, Francis. Thank you for joining us. Uh, that's uh, Francis Byrne, director of Early Childhood Ireland. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. LMFM.
Now, people working in victim support services and the criminal justice system uh, will come together tomorrow online for a seminar which will mark European Day for Victims of Crime. It's been organised by the Crime Victims Helpline and we're joined uh, by Michelle Puckhaber uh, to tell us a little bit more. Good morning to you, Michelle, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, This is a a day that's marked every year and it's been marked every year since 1990 and uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will open your seminar tomorrow, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Good morning, Michael. Uh, so the European Day for Victims of Crime happens every year on the 22nd of February. And it's really a day that has been set aside to remember, you know, everyone who has been impacted by crime. So each year, about 75 million people across Europe um, become impacted by crime, become a victim of crime. So this is just an opportunity to 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 really focus in on the victim's experience. So the event that we have uh, tomorrow is, like you said, it's an online seminar, and we're hoping to to be able to bring people together um, in person. It just didn't work out this year, but um, it will be opened by the Minister for Justice. And it's really focused in on victims' voices and victims' rights. So it's about not just the experience of the crime, but what happens next? You know, what what is the victim's experience of recovery? What kind of support do they get? And what is their experience of the criminal justice system? Uh, mm. Because what we we really want to do is bring that focus back to what does it take really for someone to go from being a victim of a crime to a survivor, you know, and what does it take to what kind of supports are needed? Um, what are the, you know, bumps along the way for, for those victims? So it's really the event tomorrow is to get those victims' voices in, in the right ears, you know, the people who impact policy, the people who provide that support. Um, and it will also focus, again, on victims' rights and, and where um, those can be improved and where kind of victims' rights are going in terms mm. of Europe. And I, I suppose we're all different, and uh, I take it uh, that different people react differently uh, when they become the uh, victim of a, a crime. That's right, and it's because it's not just about what the crime was, it's who it's happened to. So, you know, the same crime can have wildly different impact hmm. um, on different people, depending on what are their resources, you know, most emotional, financial, what are their social supports, you know, so if somebody is fairly isolated, um, doesn't have a lot of friends or family, um, you know, already has experience of trauma maybe in their past, it can, you know, it doesn't hmm. take a lot to really throw them and to really traumatize someone. So it is really looking at that yeah. really wide diverse diversity of experience. Um, and again, listen to voices. What do victims need? What do they want? Mm. And, you know, I often think of uh, people who've experienced a, a terrifying break-in, uh, an aggravated burglary or something of uh, that sort, and how they continue to be re-victimized every time there's a bump in the night. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see a lot or we hear a lot on the Crime Victims Helpline, which is a, a free helpline where we provide uh, emotional support and information about the criminal justice system as well as referrals. Um, it's a one one six zero zero six number. What we hear, though, is that, you know, sometimes we hear so much about crime, like a burglary or a, a simple assault, or mm. and it's become so commonplace that people don't really, you know, they kind of underestimate that, that impact that it has. And you think about anyone being in your home for any reason at all. Let's say you come around the corner and there's someone standing on your stairs. I mean, that's, that's going to be very, very traumatizing, you know, in the middle of the night. Anytime you, you know, go around that corner, you, there's going to be that fear that there's going to be someone there. So that there is you know, very much um, that ongoing, like you're saying, re-traumatization 
of you know, being hyper vigilant, being afraid to be, being afraid of strangers, um, being afraid of being in your own home. Um, so it, it really is, you know, again, tomorrow's opportunity to listen to what do victims need from the criminal justice system? What do they need from victim support services mm. in order to support them as they kind of go through that journey to where they're not so traumatized, you know, where they do kind of go get on with their life and um, it doesn't become a daily thing that they think about. And uh, you talk people through, indeed, help people through all of uh, the stages from uh, the initial crime up to court proceedings and thereafter, uh, if people do want support. And uh, I think your latest statistics uh, show that you've more than 5,000 people in touch with you. That would have been in 2019. Uh, and 116006, as you say, uh, the number of Michelle, and we will read that out uh, again in a moment. Uh, tell me about uh, gender-based violence. Uh, it's been in the news uh, so much uh, for many different reasons uh, this year. I take it that there will be a lot of focus on attacks on women in particular. So during the first, during 2020, during the initial COVID lockdown, you know, the Crime Victims Helpline is not the dedicated helpline for uh, victims of gender-based violence. There is, you know, Women's Aid runs the national helpline for women who are impacted um, by domestic violence. And there is the um, the Men's Male Advice Line who runs the you know, similar national mm-hmm. service for men. So, you know, we, but at the same time, we still hear a lot from um, people who are impacted by um, gender-based crime. And so during that first lockdown, our you know our statistics went up like 150% in terms of calls and contacts related to crimes that were, um, you know, domestic violence related. So we certainly saw that increase that has been reported. I mean, it's been widely, um, you know, mm. re- reported in the media and, you know, the, the organizations have really spoken out. So, that you know, that we have seen the same... And I think that, you know, one of the things I think that the Minister for Justice is going to talk about tomorrow, um, as I have, you know, I think that there are a number of, you know, new commitments to increasing the number of uh, refuge places. So where, you know, people can turn to um, to get safe out of the home, because, you know, kind of historically, uh, Ireland has had below the the level of, uh, of refuge places where that people, you know, can go to. So it's really bringing... Ireland up to the standard of the EU in terms of the supports available to victims of gender-based crime. Mm. Uh, COVID and lockdowns uh, had many impacts uh, and there was a lot of good, of course. Uh, people will remember hearing about fish in the rivers in Venice and all of that sort of thing and uh, some of the environmental benefits as a result of us not getting out and about more often. Uh, but the fact that we were locked in and didn't go out uh, had its consequences too and it brought out the worst in people in some degree, to, to, to some degree, didn't it? Well, you know, what we really saw in the helpline was a shift in terms of the types of crimes. So we saw, like we previously mentioned, an increase in uh, domestic violence-related contacts with the helpline, but also cybercrime and fraud that absolutely exploded for us, you know, in terms of people where they were home and really the connection with the outside world was on the computer. And we saw a major increase in uh, kind of um, romance scams, uh, people on you know Facebook seeing a Facebook ad for cyber currency or sorry cryptocurrency, um, and so a lot of fraud around you know the new kinds of currencies that are out there. Um, it just really you know, it seemed to us that 
crime didn't go away. It just kind of changed and adapted to the time, mm. unfortunately. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, you're uh, at the end of uh, the phone, uh, 116006. Uh, those uh, phone lines are, are open. Um, I've lost the times. <laughs> Peggy Burton, maybe you can help me there. Yep, yeah. sure. It's, you know, Monday through Friday, and here, 10, yeah. 10 to 5, yeah. and then on the weekends, just 2 to 4. But anytime mm. that somebody would like to reach out, they can leave a message and we'll get back to them um, during the next helpline open hours. Um, and just one thing I'd like to say for yeah. tomorrow, mm-hmm. um, you know, we are trying to get uh, kind of, we want victims' voices to be heard. And so on social media, we are really encouraging anyone who has they'd like to say if they've been a victim or um, to use the hashtag uh, victims voices. So that's all across social media. Okay. Just to, you know, again, to really hear, um, we have four people presenting at the at the webinar tomorrow, but obviously there's so such a diversity of voices to be heard. And so we want to really want to put the focus on that tomorrow. Okay. Hashtag victims voices. Uh, people can ring 116006 uh, from 10 to 5 uh, weekdays and 2 to 4 at the weekends. Text 08 Five one and email info Michelle, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Michelle Puckaber, who is uh, the Executive Director of the Crime Victims Helpline. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming uh, to us uh, this morning and uh, a couple of people in uh, touch so far. One uh, call from Jean, who's in Drogheda, and Jean says that there's something seriously wrong with her health system when a mother has to go public on her local radio station to try and get help for her little daughter. I'm still very upset for that lady and for her little girl. What would be happening if LMFM hadn't allowed her to share her story? Jean says she fears nothing would have happened. If ever we needed a sign that more needs to be done to help children suffering with their mental mental health, this is it, she says. Thank you, Jean. Uh, A lot of people have been in touch with us, I have to say, and a lot of people have been very upset by that story and have uh, expressed great empathy. And there's been lots of offers of help and uh, different calls like that, uh, which I think uh, have come as some... So sense of solidarity for the people involved. Uh, But what they're really hoping for today is, of course, uh, that uh, the decision will be made uh, to give inpatient uh, care to that child that should be admitted to the psychiatric unit. Uh, Susan is in Midlouth and uh, she says, how can people afford to have children in this country uh, when you can barely afford a mortgage on a house? That's if you can even do that. Throw in the cost of childcare and it's just impossible. All of these things need to be looked at by the government in the next budget. Thanks uh, for that, Susan. Another call to us from Jim in Navin who says, I think it's pretty obvious that Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital Emergency Department is struggling to cope, so there's no way, Michael, that anyone could think it would be in our best interest for the A&D in Navin to close. It'll only pile more pressure on the Lourdes. Uh, Thanks uh, for that. Uh, I think uh, the decision makers I uh, think it would be a good idea to close the emergency department in Navin Gym um, but that uh, may be for another day thanks for your call to the programme today Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM, LMFM.
Well, uh, as you know, uh, it'll no longer be a requirement uh, to wear a face mask. At least that is the expectation and uh, that will come into play from uh, the 28th, which is uh, this day next week. Uh, The three party leaders, the three government party leaders are meeting uh, this morning to sign off this uh, on this. And let's uh, talk now to Professor Anthony Staines, who is a professor of health systems in uh, nursing in DCU and spokesperson for the ISAG, the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. Good morning to you, Professor Staines, and thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, is this the right decision? There's a lot of people, obviously, who are very concerned and uh, a lot of people uh, who will say it, it can't come soon enough. I think the, it's probably a mistake at this point. Um, we know that cases of Omicron are high. We don't really know how high because our testing system is kind of broken down because there's just so many cases. We know this virus is extremely infectious. There are simple things that we can do to reduce transmission because this is an airborne virus. And those things are ventilation, wearing masks and air filtration and vaccination. Now, vaccination uptake in Ireland has been brilliant. Mm. You know, it means it obviously could, could go a bit better, but it has been outstanding. Uh, ventilation is can be challenging, particularly this time of year, because it's so cold. We can be, we can do air filtration in some types of place, but as far as I know, for example, you can't do air filtration in a taxi or a train or a bus, and most of our schools don't have air filtration in place. So that brings you down to masks. And what we know about masks is if you wear a mask, even if no one else around you is wearing masks, that gives you a level of protection. But you get a much higher level of protection if most people around you are wearing masks. And it reduces your risk both of spreading the virus to other people and of picking it up from other people. There's a sizable number of people, somewhere between half a million and a million in the country, who for a whole bunch of different reasons are at significant risk of getting seriously ill with COVID. And as, as we learn more about the, the late effects of COVID-19, the, the grounds for concern are getting stronger rather than weaker. There's, there's very recent work showing uh, from a very big US study that people who've had COVID are more likely to have heart attacks, more likely to have strokes right. over the year following diagnosis. And that's new. Mm. That's new evidence. So it's not just COVID that you'd be concerned about. Yeah, that, okay. that's right. It's the yeah. long-term effects. Yeah. WHO are very, very clear in their message, which is that every government should be doing everything they reasonably can to reduce transmission. And what we would say about things like masks is that they're, they're low cost, they're, they're low burden. I mean, compared with, this is a country that closed the pubs for, was it, nearly 600 days. Mm. This is a country that closed hospitality, closed entertainment for nearly two years. Um, compared with all of that, I mean, wearing masks is in the halfpenny place. So we would certainly urge people to keep wearing masks, you know, whatever the the, the government's decision is. Mm. And we, we I know that, you know, while Neffet have, have advised that the mandate be removed, uh, which is essentially copying what they've done in England, uh, Tony Holan has still said that the new the newest new version of Omicron is spreading like wildfire. This is what they call the BA2. Mm. Um, and he's urged that people should continue to wear masks. It's just a pity his advice to the government wasn't the same. 
Okay. Well, it's uh, the dominant strain in the UK and uh, in Northern Ireland and uh, soon to become uh, the dominant strain here. It's said to be more severe uh, than Omicron. Uh, But Omicron, obviously, nowhere near as severe as uh, the other variants beforehand. And there's another interesting study from uh, the Centre for Disease Control in America, which has looked at the number of deaths. And for people who have been fully vaccinated, who have had their booster, uh, the rate of death is very, very low uh, at 0.4 deaths per 100,000 of the population. Yeah, which is fantastic. I mean, it, it, it's what the vaccines do really, really well. The vaccines really enormously reduce your risk of dying or getting seriously ill. Mm. And they seem to have a, a significant effect, even if your immune system is not 100%. You know, e- even for people who've had cancer, people who've had transplants, who are at relatively high risk, the vaccines reduce their risk. Now, the risk is still higher than the general public. Mm. but it's a lot lower than it is before the vaccines. I mean, you, you saw the, the Queen in England has got, has got COVID. Uh, now, she's fully mm. vaccinated. Uh, if she hadn't been fully vaccinated, she would have been quite like... She's a 95-year-old yep. woman, mm. now in good health, but yep. 95. She, she would have been quite likely to die mm. with COVID before vaccination. Mm. But because of vaccination, she's, you know, she has a very good chance and I hope, I hope indeed she does, mm. of making a full recovery. And it, it seems as though people aren't getting very sick for that matter, let alone dying uh, in much smaller numbers, at least. I mean, I think that on average there's about 600 people in hospital uh, in recent days. Uh, but half of those people are there for other reasons and they've been tested and it's been found out that they have COVID. So that means that there's 300 people or thereabouts in hospital because of COVID and about half of those haven't been vaccinated. It may not be quite that simple because a fair number of the people turning up in hospital for something else who are found to have COVID, what's triggered their going into hospital is the COVID on top of their something else. Right. So they haven't turned up in hospital with a respiratory infection. Mm but they have turned up with whatever it was they had before, which has now got worse. And it turns out they've got worse because they have COVID. Mm. But it's it's a huge improvement. And without vaccination, I mean, I can can actually imagine what this would be like if we didn't have vaccines. Mm. It would be beyond horrifying. Mm. But we do have vaccines. But there's still a fairly significant number of people getting sick there's still quite a number of people dying each week from COVID. Uh, last week was the highest for a while. It was about 100 deaths. It was 15 COVID. a day. It was quite shocking. Yeah, it, it, it is shocking. Now, they, mm. that does reflect infections three or four weeks ago because that's the gap that you're talking about. Mm. But we, we are likely to see more deaths from COVID. Pe- people talk about COVID as if it was a very trivial illness. And it's it's not really. In some ways, it reminds me of polio. Polio, for about 99% of people who got it, Mm. was a trivial illness. You had a tummy bug, you had diarrhea for a few days. That was the end of it. But about one in 100 was left with paralysis afterwards. And, you know, that... So for most people, yeah, polio was trivial. Mm. But for enough people, it wasn't trivial that it was worth... It was worth an enormous effort to control it and stamp it out. And our, our take is that, you know, COVID is probably worth that. 
The concern at the moment is that if we all stop wearing masks, that flu will bounce back. And we'll have flu and COVID hitting our hospitals uh, badly. Because we've had essentially no flu for the last couple of years. Mm. But we could well have both of them hitting our hospital system at the same time. And that would be, you know, the, the, the hospital system is not in great shape. None of the changes that were meant to have been made have really been made. I mean, the department may may talk about all the targets they've achieved, but very few of those targets are relevant to anyone outside the department. Mm. Um, we we could be in significant stress in the health service within a couple of weeks. Yeah, well, if, I, if we get both, well, so please if, wear your mask. If we get both, I mean, I like the idea of wearing a mask so I don't get a, a cold again, let alone the flu, let alone COVID. And uh, you talk about polio, you're not the only one uh, to draw comparisons, uh, I think, uh, because both Neil Young and Joni Mitchell had polio when they were children. They've taken yeah. that very strong position with Spotify because they understand the benefit of vaccine and how vaccine yeah. uh, more or less eradicated polio. Uh, yeah. But uh, we have so many people in hospital with COVID who have not been vaccinated, in ICU who have not been vaccinated. I mean, it's it's incredible, but I, I guess that that's the decision that people have made for themselves. I think for many people, it's not really something they've thought through. There, there are a small number of people who are just not going to get vaccinated. And that's their, you know, that's their choice, that's their privilege. But there's an awful lot of people out there who really haven't thought about it and particularly we're seeing this in some some particular communities that are maybe more connected to the media in the countries that they've that they or their parents have come from and one of the things hsc is trying to do is, is to reach out specifically to eastern europeans living in ireland and you know encourage them to get vaccinated communicate with them in their own language communicate with them in ways that make sense for them. And they've experienced, bad experience, uh, I mean, the likes of uh, Ceausescu and the experimental vaccinations that went terribly wrong. They don't necessarily trust governments Mm. in the same, and they have good reason not to trust governments in the way that the the locals do. And that will take time to change. Mm. But it is about respect, and it is about respectful communication. It's very easy to point the finger and say, you naughty people, you should have been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the fact is, a lot of the, as, as vaccine coverage goes up, more and more of the people in hospital will have been fully vaccinated. Mm. Because that's just the way the sums work. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. Um, it's a question of maths, I suppose. Uh, yeah, but, un- unfortunately. Yeah. But, but, I mean, but if, you, if you're at risk, I, I've had a, a multiple liver transplants and my risk of dying from COVID is probably about, about 10%. If you vaccinate me and I am fully vaccinated, that falls to about 1%. Mm. But that's still quite high. Yeah, yeah. You know, 1% risk of dying from a, a common infectious virus. Is not is not such a low risk mm. that you can ignore it. But there's a, a concern I, I gather about apathy as well, because I mean there was nothing happening in the world other than COVID and problems stemming from COVID, and all of a sudden it stopped and the emergency was over. The emergency is over, yeah. and now people uh, who probably don't have a, a problem uh, with the idea of getting vaccinated and protecting themselves and all of the benefits that you've just outlined to us, they're are forgetting about it uh, and not getting their children vaccinated or not going themselves for booster or whatever the case yeah. may be. I mean, COVID mustn't be the centre of our lives. 
Okay, COVID is, is significant, but it should not be the centre of your life unless you have my kind of job, which is a different story. Yeah. But for, for most of us, this, this virus is going to be here. So we have to manage the risk from this as we manage the risk from other viruses now. And that means vaccination, air hygiene. We, we, manage, we make water safe because waterborne diseases kill millions of people every year. And they don't kill people here because under Queen Victoria, we got sewage and clean water put in and we need to maintain that. Now we need to do something similar for indoor air, particularly in crowded spaces and in public transport. So there's a whole whole piece there about readying our society to cope with this virus being around. And it's it's not... it's not insuperable. It's not central. You know, the, the change required is much less than the changes we're going to need to accommodate climate change. But we need, we need to just get on with it. And part of that will be regular vaccinations. Part of that will be if you have symptoms, don't go to work. Okay. Don't go to work that's, if you have symptoms. Yeah, well, that's uh, the fear, I think, uh, that... Uh, yeah. People with or without symptoms uh, will go to work, uh, and uh, I think uh, we'll be seeing more of that in time yeah. to come. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, uh, like it or, or lump it, I suppose, as they say, uh, it looks uh, as though the government uh, is going to go ahead uh, with uh, this deci- decision. The leaders will sign off on it uh, today, yeah. and your your advice to people will be to continue to wear masks from yeah. next week. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining Thanks us on the programme this morning. Thank you. That's Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems in DCU and spokesperson for the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, an independent uh, panel of experts uh, chaired by Judge Catherine McGuinness has been rating the government's performance in how children's lives are shaped for them by government policies in this country. The report card is out from the Children's Rights Alliance. Let's speak to Julia Hearn, Legal and Policy Manager with the Children's Rights Alliance. And a very good morning to you, Julia. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, the report, as always, looks at every aspect of life for children in this country. How has the government been performing? Good morning, Michael. Um, Yes, you're right. The the report card is our way of tracking the government's progress and what they've committed for children and young people in the programme for government. And it spans 16 different areas. And overall, we've seen it's a mixed bag once again for government. There are some areas in which they're moving forward. They're putting in place, you know, the structural pieces that are needed to make a real difference. And we've seen this in the area of, for example, direct provision, where they've published the white paper. They're putting in place the right commitments and really they just need to move on getting it implemented however we have seen then in other areas things have moved backwards particularly in the area of homelessness and in the area of mental health and these are of real Mm. concern for us in the children's rights line all right and both areas have uh, been graded e an e grade uh, for homelessness uh, which uh, you're putting particular emphasis on uh, and also on mental health, E-grade, poor performance by the government. Uh, and I suppose uh, that's been demonstrated to many of our listeners in the course of uh, the last week with that 14-year-old girl uh, whose mother had to come on to the local radio station to appeal for help. 
Yeah, and I suppose what we're seeing, particularly with the mental health grade, it's it's really what we're seeing is that in terms of camps, the system is broken, and we know that. And that government really needs to step up now and listen to children, listen to young people, listen to families, professionals, and come forward with solution-based based based recommendations that are really going to make a difference in real time on the ground for families. But also what we're really focusing on in that section is that the programme for government committed to end the placing of children in adult inpatient wards. So that's where a child who's experiencing really severe mental health difficulties needs to be in hospital and they're being placed in a bed in an adult ward. So that could be with adults, you know, double, triple their age. And we know the children who have this happened to them are incredibly frightened. Mm. And of course they are. Often it's their first time in hospital. Um, and what we've seen is that last year, 25 children and young people were placed in adult wards, which is inexcusable. Does it depend on, on how you define a, a child? Well, what we've seen is it's children in, the, in, in their adolescence. Mm. And really, what it, no child should be in an adult ward. But what is really concerning is that there is an in, in guidance that where they are, that there is certain procedures that must be followed. So, for example, they have to be kept away from the adults. They have to be given special mm. um, treatments. And we've, that there has been there has been reports that actually this hasn't even happened for some of those 25 children. Yeah. But I suppose for us, the really concerning part is that government are for the first time in legislation that is going through the House of the Oireachtas going to put this practice on a statutory footing. So in the programme for government, they've committed to ending it. And now they're bringing in a law that will have it for the first time in mm. legislation that children can be put into bed in adult wards where they're experiencing mental health difficulties. Well, a, a child is somebody under the age of under 18, age 18 but uh, in general hospitals uh, quite often uh, children aged 16 and 17 are placed on adult wards and there is a problem with that isn't there in that if uh, they're transferred then for psychiatric treatment they're treated as adults. Yeah, and I suppose uh, in mental health, in the area of mental health, children are deemed to be children on, under the age of 18. That's very clearly set out in law. And like, anyone who's been inside of an adult, an adult ward or any, in any hospital, particularly a mental health ward, will know that it isn't an easy place to go into and that people in there can be really suffering from very, very difficult things that they're dealing with. And to put a child in with adults where they're not being looked after and they're not being cared for in what is a really really scary environment just isn't right mm. and it's something that the government really need to look at and we know that this has been looked at by other international experts and they have they have recommended that Ireland don't do this anymore because it is really damaging to those yeah. children and young people. So so what does that mean? What's required to, to achieve that? I take it a lot of investment and a lot of beds uh, because when we heard the story of CAMS and how that child uh, was not uh, being admitted uh, last week. Uh, we heard from many, many people who were telling us that it's different uh, for uh, anyone who's over 18, uh, that the adult system is far more accessible. Uh, but if you can't, if you're, if you're so obviously in need of psychiatric treatment and the places aren't there for you as a child, uh, surely the idea of not sending children to adult uh, institutions is going to compound that problem, uh, a problem that already exists and there's already an obvious deficit in. What we really need is focus on interventions. And the health system has to date focused on crisis interventions. But what they really need to do is to shift the focus to primary care and to other therapies to prevent children and young people reaching a place. Now, not every child and young person 
can be prevented from reaching a place where they need inpatient care. But some can. What we need to do is we need to focus on that preventative element while also increasing beds and making sure that they're accessible for children and young people and their families. And then while we're doing that and getting to that point where children are being placed in adult units, making sure that the guidelines are being respected so that children aren't in a bed next to an adult, mm. that they're being set in a separate place, that they're being looked after by appropriately trained staff, that they're that there are activities put in place that are appropriate to them as opposed to them having to be with the adults. So really, I think it's about government looking at this and really putting the will and the backing behind trying to ensure that they make the mental health system one that is fit for purpose because it's that breaking point. And we know that children, young people and their families really are in crisis trying to access all kinds of therapies. But we need to start by shifting the focus to primary care so we can prevent more children, young people needing that level of care and then we're the ones that do make sure that it's there for them and that it's accessible and that they can get it when they need it. Okay, talk to me about homelessness uh, because uh, I think we all forgot about homelessness uh, for a while during uh, the pandemic and lockdowns and uh, it wasn't as obvious and pro- probably wasn't uh, as bad uh, because places came available that would have been used for tourism and such like, uh, but uh, it hasn't got away obviously. No, and what we saw is that the measures that the government took during the pandemic prevented families from falling into homelessness. So Mm. these were measures such as banning evictions and rent freezes and other measures that they took. And really what we've seen that is since those measures have been dropped, that we've seen a creeping up of the numbers. And we know because of what they did during the pandemic that homelessness is not inevitable, that it can be stopped and that we need government to look in the short term at what they can do to prevent families from becoming homeless. But also in the long term, we know that the reliance on the private market hasn't worked and we need to look at building houses. We have seen in the program, in the report card that there are over 2,000 children and young people homeless at the end of December. So that's enough to field over 120 kids' GA football teams. So when you think of it like that, there's a lot of children and it's increasing gradually throughout the year. And unless the government starts to take preventative measures that we know and that have proven to have worked, it's only just going to continue to increase. And really worrying is that a significant number of children who have been homeless in Dublin in particular, they've been homeless for over two years. So really there's an issue there in terms of ensuring that children and young people are prevented from becoming homeless, but also that that where they are homeless, that they're moved on and moved into secure accommodation as soon as possible. Okay. Uh, Talk to me about online safety, if you would. Yes, this year at online safety, the government did have a slight increase in their grade and they were increased to a C- grade. And the reason behind that is there's a very important uh, commitment to the programme for government to establish an online safety commissioner. And this is something that we in the Children's Rights Alliance have been advocating for along with our members for a long time. And in the last year, the government has published a bill which will start to um, build the media commission with online safety functions. Mm. Now, there are gaps in that bill in that um, an online safety commissioner isn't specifically named and that very importantly, the issue of individual complaints. That's where a child or young person experiences something negative online. They've made a complaint to one of the platforms and the platform hasn't dealt with it. Currently, they've nowhere else to go. And what we're advocating for is that an individual complaints mechanism, so an avenue for them to go to this online safety commissioner is introduced. And that would make sure that the platforms would have to put in place proper complaints mechanisms so that they would deal with things really effectively in the first instance. And then the really harsh ones then would go to, the harder cases, sorry, would go to this online safety commissioner. Mm. And we know that this legislation is starting moving, so it's going to be in the Shannon this week. 
and it's really important and we heard as well in the media yesterday from the Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan as well that really we need this individual complaints a channel where people can contact the commissioner when something goes wrong and get a remedy because we know the harm that on that the online world is causing for children and young people it has such amazing benefits for them but often children are experiencing harm and they need somewhere to go to be able to get a remedy for that. Okay, well, There's obviously a, a lot of good work uh, that is being done as well with some very high grades a, an A grade and a number of B grades uh, for the government uh, but uh, undoubtedly uh, there still needs to be attention on some of these other issues uh, that you've been talking to us about this morning Julie and thank you for doing that and for joining us on the programme. Julia Hearn, the and policy manager with the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we return to Kells and Rabbit Hill Wood. Uh, let's uh, speak uh, once uh, again uh, to local councillor Sarah Riley. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. There was a lot of concern that uh, the trees were going to be felled and with that uh, the habitat for the heron and uh, the red squirrel and so on would be lost and forevermore to give way to housing. What's the latest on that? Yeah, I suppose as your listeners will remember, Michael, um, last week I was talking about the uh, tree felling licence had been issued for Rabbit Hill Wood and there was local concern about, the, as you said, that the heron and other wildlife who, who have made a home out of Rabbit Hill Wood. Um, but I'd have to say, with, with thanks to a huge amount of effort on behalf of the community, that tree felling licence has now been suspended. And uh, I'd have to say, on a personal note, I'm very grateful to everybody who, who sent emails and made phone calls um, to try try and get us to this point. And, um, you know, it's very welcome. Right. Uh, a suspension, what does that mean? Uh, is it under review or what's the situation? Yeah, so, so basically um, I was informed that the pilot with the forestry inspectors and um, they will be review, reviewing the, the file. Um, there's no specific time frame under which that decision has to be made. So I suppose I'll be checking in with them every 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 other day. Um, but the department has assured me that the licence will not be restored until it is 100% satisfied that the, that the licence was issued correctly. Okay. Uh, and that's issued by the MPWS, is it? Or who issues the licence for that? Um, it's uh, the Department of Agriculture is the right. selling licence action, yeah. Okay, uh, so um, there's no way that these trees uh, can be felled in uh, the interim. Uh, as you say, uh, that will be seen as a reprieve, but a very welcome one by locals. Yeah, and it was, we had a demonstration, we had a protest at the trees um, about a week ago now, just over a week ago. And uh, it was lovely to see so many, you know, younger, older people out with their placards, just demonstrating, just saying, these trees are an important part of the landscape for the Harvest Walk on which the on Pedford Road. Both have been there for my lifetime, and we just want to see them protected. And the, the heron who, who we see um, come back yearly and um, making a nesting ground in the woods, we want to see them protected. Like they really are, they're a mystical bird. And the other other wildlife that have made a home as well in mm. the woods. Um, I suppose climate change. You know, it, it is talked about so much now, but. I often feel the biodiversity, you know, which it's obviously connected to climate change, but it gets less airtime. Um, but it obviously is an important, um, important part of that puzzle. Yeah, okay, well, it's a battle. God knows how the war will end, uh, but uh, it's definitely a battle that has been won by the local community. What about ownership? Last time you were with us, you said there was a question mark over ownership of the land. 
Yeah, and that, it's just it's an interesting part of it. A lot of people would have contacted me um, over the last couple of weeks, I suppose, with, with their thoughts on the ownership of the land and surprised to see any anything afoot in relation to the land because I suppose it's just kind of been left and abandoned there for years. Now, I might say abandoned in, in a good way because it has been home. It's an important home to, to the heron and the wildlife that's there, but has been has been untouched and unclaimed, if you like, for, for, for decades. Um but yeah, and I think I would have always assumed that the forest would belong to the parish because it's to the rear of the of the cemetery, and it would allow for the orderly expansion of the cemetery in in decades to come. Um, but yeah, I know there's been an awful lot of local speculation in terms of of the ownership of the land, and mm. um, there is a, a planning application in on it at, at present. Um, but I, I think that that's due to uh, expire shortly. Mm. So you know, that's the application for housing, is it? Yeah, there's an application mm. for the three executive style houses on, on the site at the minute. Okay. But, um, during the course of the council development plan, uh, we managed to get the, the site uh, effectively dezoned to make um, A2 residential um, to basically dezone so that no building could, could um, take part on it. Well, during, of course, the lifetime of this county development plan, but I suppose you never, you never know what, what's going to come in a county development plan mm. in the future. Okay, um, but it does sound very odd, doesn't it, uh, that there's a question mark over the ownership. Uh, surely that's easily cleared up. Can the council not clear that up? Well, it, it's not registered land, and you know, I've kind of gone through this right. fair bit with um, with the council, it just you know, identifying other plots of land that are around it, and it's, it's unusual in terms of where it is that it's, it isn't registered. And I suppose with any unregistered piece of land, I suppose that you know there can be a bit of debate on it, particularly I suppose when it has been unclaimed and abandoned, if you like, for for, for decades. Uh, I did ask the council if they would do a definitive land search on it, and uh, I, I we didn't I didn't wasn't met with an absolute no, but um, I suppose the live planning application needs to expire before we we even consider going down that road. Was was basically the response that I did receive. Okay, it's a, an odd situation uh, or at least it seems very odd uh, to me I'm not sure uh, that uh, you'd hear of questions like that that haven't been answered particularly when uh, there's something like this that's in contention uh, and people are trying to save what has become a natural habitat Yeah and, and it is part it's part of the landscape, you know even I can remember when when I was in leaving there to take a walk down the, the Harvest Walk out to the out to the bridge, it is it's a beautiful it's, it's our best approach road. It's it's the most ma- amount of natural beauty on it, and I think people really have grown to appreciate it, particularly during um, COVID nineteen when everybody was just out walking. It, it, it's it's we're, we're very fortunate to have it, and I said these um, these beauty spots need to be protected. Um, and I think we've become more and more um, aware of our need as, as, as a community to, I suppose, to, to be proactive instead of reactive when it comes to these things. OK, well, it's a win of sorts. It's certainly not over, uh, but it's a step in the right direction from uh, the perspective of uh, the local people who were so concerned. Thanks for the update and for joining us once again on the programme today. That's Fidigale Councillor Sarah Riley. Now, before we leave you, uh, some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. Mairead is in Drogheda and she says, I wonder should research be carried out as to why so many young children are suffering with their 
mental health and what the reasons behind it are. Listening to your coverage over the past number of days has been eye-opening for me as a parent. A lot of parents crying out for help for their children and it is worrying. It's very disturbing. It certainly is, Mairead, and uh, I think you make a very valid point. Uh, It's been very eye-opening for me as well and we've really only given you a flavour of what people have been saying and the amount of people who have been in touch with us and the amount of problems uh, that people are trying to cope with uh, really is hard to believe uh, but thanks uh, for making that point thanks too to Claire Mead who's been texting us about the emergency department in the Lourdes Hospital Claire says she was there last Tuesday from one o'clock to half eight when two doctors arrived and advised us all to go home and come back in the morning the place was completely full ambulances arriving all of the time if our government was a business it would be closed long ago. I can't understand why they can't get things done. Thank you indeed. Somebody else in touch with us uh, about uh, that 14-year-old girl who says uh, they want uh, to add that all parents in schools should highlight that bullying other children should not and will not be tolerated. The poor girl's problem started with being called fat. We owe it to all children to put a stop to that type of behaviour. Thank you for making that point as well. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.